As soon as we read the opening lines of Truma, we begin the massive shift from the intense drama of the Exodus, with its signs and wonders and epic events, to the long, detailed, exhaustive narrative of how the Israelites constructed the tabernacle, the portable sanctuary that they carried with them through the desert. By any standards, it's part of the Torah that cries out for explanation. I mean, the first thing that strikes us is the sheer length of the account, one-third of the book of Shemot, five parshia, truma, tetzaveh, half of kisisa, vayakel, and pekude, interrupted only by the story of the golden calf. And this becomes even more perplexing when we compare it to another act of creation, namely God's creation of the universe. That story is told with the utmost brevity, a mere 34 verses. Why take some 15 times as long to tell the story of the sanctuary? The question becomes harder still when we recall that the Mishkan was not a permanent feature of the spiritual life of the children of Israel. It was specifically designed to be carried on their journey through the wilderness, and later, in the days of Solomon, it would be replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. So what enduring message are we supposed to learn from a construction that was not designed to endure? Even more puzzling is the fact that the story is part of the book of Shemot. Shemot, Exodus, is about the birth of a nation. Hence Egypt, slavery, Pharaoh, the plagues, the Exodus, the journey through the sea, the covenant of Mount Sinai. All these things would become part of our people's collective memory, but the sanctuary, where sacrifices were offered, that surely belongs to the book of Vayikra, otherwise known as Torah Kanim, Leviticus, the book of priestly things. That's where it belongs. It seems to have no connection with Exodus whatsoever. But the answer, I believe, is profound. The transition from Bereshis to Shemos, from Genesis to Exodus, is about the change from family to nation. When the Israelites entered Egypt, they were a single extended family. By the time they left, they had become a sizable people divided into 12 tribes plus an amorphous collection of fellow travelers known as the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude. Now what united them was a fate. They were the people whom the Egyptians distrusted and enslaved. The Israelites had a common enemy. Beyond that, they had a memory of the patriarchs and their god. They shared a past. What was to prove difficult, almost impossible, was to give them a shared sense of responsibility for the future. Everything we read in Shemot tells us that, as is so often the case among people long deprived of their freedom, they were passive, and they were easily moved to complain. The two often go together. They expected somebody else, Moses or God, to provide them with food, water, lead them to slavery, take them to the promised land. They expected somebody else to do it for them. And if not, they complained. At every setback, they complained. They complained when Moses' first intervention failed. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have poured a sword in their hand to kill us. At the Red Sea, they complained again. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. After the division of the Red Sea, the terror says, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in Moses, his servant. 
But after a mere three days, they were complaining again. There was no water, or there was water, but it was too bitter. Then there was no food. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Soon Moses himself is saying to God, what am I to do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, by then, God had already performed signs and wonders on the people's behalf, taken them out of Egypt, divided the sea for them, given them water from a rock, manna from heaven, and still they don't cohere as a nation. They're a group of individuals unwilling or unable to take responsibility, to act collectively rather than to complain. And now God does the single greatest act in the history of human religious experience. He appears in the revelation of Mount Sinai, the only time in history that God has appeared to an entire people. And the people tremble. There was never anything like it before. There never will be again. How long does this last? 40 days. Then the people start making a golden calf. If miracles, the division of the Red Sea, and the revelation at Mount Sinai failed to transform the Israelites, what will? There are no greater miracles than these. That is when God does the single most unexpected thing. He says to Moses, speak to the people and get them to contribute, to give something of their own. Be it gold or silver or bronze, wool, animal skin, oil, incense, or their skill, or their time, and get them to build something together. A symbolic home for my presence, a tabernacle. It doesn't mean to be large or grand or permanent. Get them to make something. Get them to become builders. Get them to give. And Moses does, and the people respond. They respond so generously that Moses is told the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. And Moses has to say, stop. During the whole time the tabernacle was being constructed, there were no complaints, no rebellions, no dissension. What all the signs and wonders failed to do, the construction of the tabernacle succeeded in doing. It transformed the people. It turned them into a cohesive group. He gave them a sense of responsibility and achievement and identity. Seen in this context, the story of the tabernacle was the essential, crucial element in the birth of a nation. No wonder it's told at length. No surprise that it belongs to the book of Exodus. And there's nothing ephemeral about it whatsoever. The tabernacle didn't last forever, but the lesson it taught really did. It's not what God does for us that transforms us, but what we do for God. A free society is best symbolized by the tabernacle. It is the home we build together. It is only by becoming builders that we turn from subjects to citizens. We have to earn our freedom by what we give, by what we build. It cannot be given to us as an unearned gift. It is what we do, not what is done to us, that makes us free. That is a lesson as true today as it was then. Shabbat Shalom.